And I want to lead us just in a very simple, old Anglican prayer. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. Give us ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the command to carry one another's burdens um, uh, appears most succinctly in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, which says, carry one another's burdens, for in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians. Uh, That's on page 941 in the Bibles that the ushers just handed out. Uh, Galatians uh, chapter 6. Uh, And I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 5. Galatians 6, beginning at verse 1. It says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, for in this you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. I'm going to make a few um, sort of general comments here about the context of, of Paul's letter to the Galatian Christians, and then uh, we'll, we'll look at some key things that, that this text uh, says to us. Um, first of all, uh, Galatians, who, who are they? Um, Bible scholars aren't certain, absolutely anyway, about the location of Galatia. Um, most seem to think that it is probably a Roman province in what is present-day Turkey, named for its Gaelic or Celtic immigrant population. Uh, Paul had preached the gospel to these Gaelic uh, immigrants on one of his missionary journeys that we read about in Acts chapter 16. Sometime after the church was established there, Jewish Christians were trying to compel these Celtic Christians to observe the Jewish law, um, which really makes Paul angry. Um, he's, He's furious about it. Uh, He says that anyone who tries to add to the gospel that was first preached to them is accursed. Strong, strong words. Uh, It's in Galatians 1.8. And to the Celtic Christians in Galatia, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has hypnotized you or in some translations bewitched you? Uh, in In our modern vernacular, we might say, what have you been smoking? What? Or as my dad used to say, what in the Sam Hill were you thinking? Mr. Hill showed up in a lot of the conversations between my dad and me. Anyway, Paul's argument throughout the book is that believers are justified not by keeping the Jewish law, but in Christ alone. Okay? So justification through faith in Christ is this major theme in the letter to the Galatians. And with that as a sort of backdrop or context, we we come to our text in Galatians 6, 
um, which we just read. So here are a few uh, highlights that, that we see in this text. Uh, Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing or, or sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with gentle spirit. And the word overtaken uh, speaks of this sin that has sort of uh, chased you down, ambushed you. Uh, it doesn't excuse that sin, but it's different than the sin that you walk into intentionally, right? We all, we all know that, that, that sometimes we know exactly what we're doing when we choose sin and we choose to do it anyway. And sometimes not only do we choose it, we choose it over and over again, right? Uh, that's, that's not being overtaken, uh, oops, I was just... No, you meant to do that, right? Um, that's, that's willful, blatant sin. But other times, sin tends to sort of creep up on us. It, it, it might be that careless word or, or a lapse in your sobriety from some addiction to uh, some sin. Uh, it, it's, this, is, this is what's meant by being overtaken in sin. So, so we have overtaken... Uh, we also notice that uh, the word restore is here um, uh, right at the beginning of chapter 6. Uh, this, is, this is a healing word. Uh, the, the Greek underneath our word restore means to, to bring something back to health, to, to put something back in working order, uh, to adjust something, almost like a, a chiropractor uh, would do. Uh, bring it back to a fully functioning state. And verse 1 says that this is what we are to do when a brother or sister is overtaken by some sin. Next, when we get to verse 2, we have our one another command uh, that, that is our focus this morning. Carry one another's burdens. But there's also an interesting explanation after the command because Paul says that when we do this, we fulfill the law of Christ. We fulfill the law of Christ. Now, that phrase, uh, the law of Christ, is a phrase that's unique to Paul's writing. Uh, He uses that phrase in 1 Corinthians 9, refers to it in Galatians chapter 5. Um, A lot of Bible scholars think that uh, the law of Christ is Paul's way of referring to the great commandment. Uh, That commandment that Jesus repeats in Matthew 22, Mark 12, Luke 10, the great commandment, which says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Very familiar to us. Uh, But somehow, when we carry one another's burdens, we fulfill the great commandment, the law of Christ. I'm moving quickly through these verses, but hang in here with me. Um, because this, this is all going somewhere. Uh, this, the next phrase that we need to highlight, uh, we see in verses 3 and 4. Uh, Paul says, If anyone considers himself to be something when he is really nothing, he deceives himself. Then he says, Let each person examine his own work, and then he can pride himself, uh, take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. The emphasis here is on comparison. It's, it's that tendency for us to look at someone else and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as they are, right? Uh, we might 
do that with our, our language. Well, I don't, yeah, I mean, occasionally I, I let a word slip, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so, right? Maybe we do it with TV shows or movies that we watch. Uh, we might do it with our driving habits. Yeah, I, I go over the speed limit, but man, people are racing by me. Right? We do it in a lot of different ways. I used to pride myself on the fact that I didn't take drugs when I was in middle school and high school. But I would hold drugs for my friends when they came under suspicion of the, of the school police. I just want to say, that's a special kind of stupid right there. <laughs> Dave Marquardt's back there nodding his head. He's, he, he knows guys like that. Um, anyway, we do this, right? We compare our good deeds or bad ones to the good and bad in others. Verse 4 doesn't say really that we should be proud. It's, it's saying that your good work isn't based on a grade curve, right? It's either good or it's not, regardless of what others are doing. It's not good because it's better than someone else's bad, right? And then lastly, in verse 5, uh, we read that each person will have to carry his own load. So what's Paul doing here? Is this a contradiction with verse Two, where it says, carry one another's burdens. And then in verse 5, everyone has to carry their own load. What's going on? Um, it's not a contradiction. The, the, the Greek words under the words burdens and load, burdens in verse 2, load in verse 5, are different words. Uh, the word for load means a, a tolerable load, like, like a, a hiker maybe carrying a backpack. It, it's a normal daily load that all of us have to carry. But the word for burdens is different. It's, it's, uh, it's an unusually heavy burden, um, almost crushing. Uh, it's that burden that, that threatens to do a person in. And this, this burden might be a spiritual one where the person needs someone or, or maybe a group of someones to support them in prayer. This is what Ben was talking about when we when we pray for one another, right? Uh, the burden might be a physical one where they need help in their, in their rehab from a, from a surgery or an injury or something. A burden might be a financial one where, where crisis sort of snuck up on them. Um, a negative event overtook them. And, and in many ways, they had, they had no way of, of really preparing for it. And that person needs someone to, to help out with that. Uh, heavy burden. So that's kind of a synopsis of Galatians 6, 1 through 5. And, and when I think of the themes that we see there, these are the words that sort of bubble up as, as significant. Um, legalism and, and justification are, are major themes here in Galatians. An, another theme is a brother or sister who is overtaken. Uh, we see the theme of, of comparing or thinking that you're better than others because your sin isn't as bad as theirs. We see restoration or or bringing healing to the person who has been overtaken. We see the command to carry the burdens of a brother or sister. And uh, and then we see that fulfilling the law uh, of Christ is is what happens. The great commandment uh, is what happens when we do this. Um. Those are all really great. And, and we, could, we could stop there, 
And I think every single one of us would have um, really a lot to chew on. Um, I want to fulfill the law of Christ. I want to obey his commands. So I need, I need to do this, right? But as I was kind of thinking through this Galatians passages, some of the words and the, and the themes began to recall for me another place where Jesus uses a story to teach this same truth. So I'm going to ask you to turn back uh, in your Bibles to Luke's gospel. Uh, The passage we're going to look at is on page 834 of those Bibles the ushers handed out. Uh, We're going to look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. So Luke tells us, Now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? The expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. We'll pause here for for a moment, make a couple of observations. Uh, First of all, this story starts with an expert in religious law. Uh, These religious lawyers, if, if you will, knew the Hebrew scriptures forward and backwards. They knew not only how many words there were in the Hebrew scriptures, they knew the exact number of letters uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, the law, those first five books. They were, they were sort of the supreme court of the, of the land, right? They knew the law better than anyone else. They, they've given their life to this. And part of the job of a religious lawyer these experts in religious law, was to test the orthodoxy of a young uh, rabbi, any young rabbis who who came along. And so this religious expert uh, asks Jesus a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And as Jesus, Jesus so often does, he answers the question by asking another question. It's brilliant, and I hate it when he does it to me, right? This is what he does. Jesus says, what is written in the law, and how do you understand it? He doesn't challenge this man's expertise in the law. He simply asks, what what do you see? How do you understand it? What is the way to eternal life, as, as taught in the Old Testament scriptures? And the man answers Jesus' question with sort of an agreed-upon essence of the law. He answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the scribes and Pharisees uh, had hundreds of specific rules that one had to keep in order to please God. Uh, they they all seem to agree that if you, if you boil all of those down to their essence, you would have something like this. Love God and love people. 
And they reasoned that if you did that, you would end up doing the right things that lead to eternal life. Okay? And Jesus affirms the man's answer. You have answered correctly. Jesus basically says, yep, all you have to do to inherit eternal life is practice unwavering love for God and your neighbor without fail. And I imagine Jesus sort of winked at him and said, good luck with that, you know. Uh, It's simple, but it's not easy, right? So the legal expert says, and who is my neighbor? Uh, For the first time in this story, we see into the heart of this man. Uh, Luke tells us that he asks the question in an attempt to justify himself. And really, this, this man's whole life has been built upon justifying himself, keeping or, or attempting to keep the law in order to justify himself before God. And now he wants to know how Jesus would define neighbor. Uh, Kenneth Bailey is a, is a name I've mentioned before. He's done a lot of really excellent work on understanding Near East culture in the first century. Uh, he suggests that in the lawyer's opinion, neighbor would naturally include his fellow Jews. Okay, so it's not literally the person who lives next door, but he was being really generous. Neighbor would, would mean all Jews. Uh, Gentiles are not neighbors, uh, and everyone knows that God hates Samaritans, so they certainly do not qualify as neighbors, okay? That's the mindset, right? But Jesus is going to turn the tables on this guy, and in answer to the man's question, Jesus tells a story, something else he often did, okay? And he does it to explain what God had intended all along. It's it's probably one of Jesus' most famous uh, stories. We have hospitals named after this story. Um, Where are you? Mike Mike worked there. I think Scott works there. Um, We read it beginning at verse 30. Don't forget, the question on the table is, who is my neighbor? Well, there's, there's no disagreement on love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Who's my neighbor? So Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him up, and went off leaving him half dead. Uh, Jericho is actually northeast of Jerusalem, but the trip is downhill, okay? Uh, Jericho is about 850 feet below sea level, and and the terrain from Jerusalem uh, down to to Jericho um, is rocky, pretty desolate, lots of opportunities for really bad stuff to happen to a person who's on that road. Uh, In fact, in Jesus' day, that road from Jerusalem to Jericho was called the Way of Blood. Okay, really uh, dangerous, right? You you don't want to be traveling alone uh, on this road. We don't know who the man was. Jesus doesn't tell us. The story doesn't, doesn't help us. He's been stripped, 
and robbed. Uh, He's not wearing any clothing that would identify his ethnicity, right? He's not carrying ID. Uh, He's beaten and bloody, maybe, maybe unrecognizable, right? What we do know is that he was overtaken by robbers who left him half dead. Um, Nothing super surprising yet in this story. Common for people to be overtaken by robbers on this road. But then the story gets interesting. Verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road, but when he saw the injured man, he passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, if you're like me, you, you, you want to immediately judge the priest and the Levite in Jesus' story, right? That's, that's, that's what I do uh, when I read this. Rotten guys, right? You should have stopped and helped. But that's probably not what this expert in the law was thinking. Again, Bailey is, is helpful in understanding the context of the story. Uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem was served by three classes of people. Priests were the, the, the top class, uh, Levites were the second class, and the third class were, were lay people who helped in various aspects of the life in the temple. The priests, says Bailey, had a, had a special problem in this situation. Wounded man beside the road is unconscious and stripped. If he's a fellow Jew, and especially a law-abiding Jew, the priest has a responsibility to reach out and help him. And the priest knows this. But this man was naked and unconscious. So how can I be sure of his identity? I don't know if he's a Jew. For all he knew, the wounded man might be dead. Not just mostly dead, right? If he was dead, then the priest who approached him would be uh, ceremonially unclean. And if that happened, he has to go back up to Jerusalem and undergo a week-long process of ceremonial purification. So this poor priest, he doesn't have an easy time trying to determine what his duty is under the law. So it seems that after deciding that his ceremonial purity was, was too important to risk, he continued on his way. So while we might judge the priest, The expert in the law would not have. Maybe he's even been faced with this kind of a scenario before. What about the Levite who came after him? Levites were the assistants to the priests in the temple. Uh, At the the very least, this Levite would have the same concerns as the priest. Um, Bailey even imagines that the Levite knew the priest was ahead of him on the road and may have seen him pass by the wounded man. He may have even been an assistant to this same priest. And since the priest had already set a precedent, the the Levite could pass by with a clear conscience. After all, should a mere Levite upstage the priest? Did the Levite think that he understood the law better than the priest did? What's more, the Levite might have to face the same priest in Jericho that night. Could, could the Levite really ride into Jericho with a wounded man whom the priest, in obedience to his far better understanding of the law, had opted to ignore? That'd be an insult to the priest. 
So after considering his options, the Levite also passes by. Now, uh, what Bailey sees here, I, I think, is in, important. Stories that establish a series also set a direction. So if I tell you a story that begins with a school district superintendent, and then the next person I introduce is a principal of a school, we might assume that the next person I would introduce is like a teacher, right? There's a, there's a progression that we see happening. So if a first century uh, Jewish story in, begins with a priest and then introduces uh, a Levite, the third person down the road should be a Jewish layman who helps out in the temple. That's what everyone listening to the story is expecting. We got a priest, we got a Levite, I know who's coming next, right? But not in this story. Verse 33, then a Samaritan, cue the music, boom, 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 right? Then a Samaritan who was traveling came to where the injured man was. And when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. I, I think it's difficult for us to understand just how shocking and even repulsing this twist in the story would be to the expert in the law. The hero of this story just cannot be a Samaritan. To the Jews, the Samaritans were, were half-breed heretics. For, for, for some Americans, especially those of us who are older, it might be like telling the story with Billy Graham as the first one who passed by and I don't know, Chuck Swindoll or somebody like that is the second one. And then uh, a Muslim imam. What? I mean, this, this just took a sharp turn, right? I, I was thinking even in light of, of, of current events for the contemporary Jewish person, the Samaritan in the story might be equivalent to a Palestinian, Palestinian from Gaza. What? It's a really offensive twist in Jesus' story. So back to the story. The Samaritan has compassion on the wounded man. He, he bandages and treats his wounds to restore him to health. He loads him on his own animal and takes him to an inn, which put himself in danger, uh, does this all in order to take care of the man. And then the next day he gives the innkeeper two coins, two denarii is what it says in the Greek. That's two days wages. And he tells the innkeeper that if he has to spend more, he'll repay him when he returns. And then Jesus asks another question to the expert in the religious law. Which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Now notice what, what Jesus does with the question of neighbor. 
In verse 29, the expert in religious law asked, Who is my neighbor? Verse 36, Jesus asked, Which of these three became a neighbor? You see, Jesus Jesus is turning the question around and, and, and saying that it's more important to be the good neighbor than it is to know who your neighbor is. Who are you obligated to help as your neighbor? Jesus turns it around. It's also interesting that the way Luke tells the story anyway, the uh, the, the expert in the law can't bring himself to say the Samaritan was the better neighbor. Maybe he stammered on it. The s- 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 the one who showed mercy. Right? He's still so in shock with the story, so so caught in his own ethnic and and really religious superiority that all he can murmur is the one who showed mercy to him. And then the exchange ends with Jesus saying, go and do the same. So why two texts this morning? Why jump from Galatians to the parable of the Good Samaritan? I showed a slide earlier of the the themes I see in Galatians 6. It's interesting to put them uh, side by side with the themes of Luke 10. Paul's letter to the Galatians was written because of legalism. The expert in the law was focused on what he had to do to earn eternal life, legalism. Galatians were trying to justify themselves rather than being justified in Christ. Expert in the law wanted to justify himself when he asked the question, who is my neighbor? Uh, Galatians 6 1 begins with a brother or sister who is overtaken in sin. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan begins with a man who was overtaken by robbers. Galatians 6 3 warns against thinking more highly of yourself than you should. The priest and the Levite in Luke 10 both thought they were too good to stop and help. Uh, Verse 1 in Galatians 6 we are to restore a person overtaken in sin, bringing them back. To health, the Samaritan bandaged and nursed the man's wounds and restored him to health. And then both passages have the great commandment, the law of Christ, as their central point. You see what I'm seeing? Very similar. And there's there's one more similarity between these two texts. Paul makes it clear in Galatians three. Uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the law that the Jewish Christians were trying to impose on uh, the Celtic Christians in Galatia was the same law that the lawyer came to question Jesus about. Many Bible scholars believe that the Samaritan in Luke 10 represents Christ. And Jesus doesn't say that, but you can kind of see why they come up with that. Because Christ left his own home in heaven to come and be a neighbor to us, made his dwelling among us, tabernacled with us. He he carried our burden, our overwhelming burden that we 
literally could not carry. He carried it for us to the cross, which brought spiritual healing to us. As the prophet Isaiah says, by his wounds, we are healed. So Paul teaches in Galatians that it's only in Christ that we can inherit eternal life and actually do the great commandment or the law of Christ. And Jesus, I think, shows the expert in the law that it's impossible for him to do, for the expert in the law to do what his own law says he has to do. So I think both texts teach us that it's only in Christ that we can truly obey the great commandment. But both actually give us hope that in Christ, we actually can do it. We can, but only in Christ. You see? So let's try to move this from the theological to the practical, uh, something we, we always have to be mindful of. What do we do with this information this morning? Um, Maybe it's interesting to you, the parallels in Galatians 6 and Luke 10. Maybe you leave going, wow, that was really interesting. Uh, Please don't. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's interesting, but if we stop there, we've stopped certainly shy of what Jesus says to do and what Paul says to do. Um. It seems to me that as, as, we, um, as we figure out what to do, part, part of what that is is to look back at the three aspects of Christian community that I've been um, repeating every week in this series in my introductions. Um, first, we've got to start seeing the Imago Dei, the image of God in the people around us. If we don't, we're never going to get there. This is what the priest and the Levite couldn't do and what the Samaritan demonstrated so beautifully. He he saw that people, all people, are created in the image of God. And we are to treat them with respect and and dignity that, that his image bearers deserve. We are to be the good neighbor. If you ever find yourself asking, who is it really that, that I am supposed to, to be a neighbor to, to love my neighbor as myself? Be the good neighbor. Okay? So look around, open your eyes to the ways that you can be the good neighbor and carry another person's burdens. Uh, secondly, uh, we need to understand that, that while we can be a decent neighbor, there's a lot of nice people in the world, while we can be a decent neighbor without Christ, you cannot fulfill the law of Christ without being formed to the Imago Christi, the image of Christ. So unless our lives are surrendered to Jesus as king, we'll keep doing the law in an attempt to justify ourselves. We fall right back into legalism. So easy for us to do. But if and when our lives are fully surrendered to Christ, then he, he conforms us. He, he, sometimes it, 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 he squeezes us, right, into his image. And then we can truly fulfill the law of Christ. And finally, uh, we do all of this for the glory of day, the glory of God. Loving 
God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself brings glory to God. It's what he made us for. Uh, It's what his son Jesus did perfectly for us. And in Christ, we can do it too. He he commands us to. Uh, I want to close with one last illustration um, that, I, that I think is a good picture of this. I have a friend named Sean. Um, not this Sean. Um, I first met Sean when he was a student in our youth group. And over the years, Sean has repeatedly humbled me in his desire and pursuit of following Jesus. And I think one story in particular uh, demonstrates a contemporary setting of the story we've looked at today. Uh, I asked Sean to write it out uh, for me uh, to share with you. This is what he says. I first saw Tom as I was stopped at a red light. He was crossing the street in front of me on Highway 99 at the Tigered Fred Meyer. I pulled into the Freddy's parking lot and approached him to ask if he needed anything. He wanted coffee and a blanket. I lived close by, so I went home to get a blanket and grabbed a drive-through coffee for him. I had a hard time understanding his speech. I thought, I wonder if he's on drugs. I wonder if he's safe. Sean says, later I found out that he had had a stroke. And that's what slurred his speech. Tom was living in a small forested area near the McDonald's across from that Fred Meyer. The next morning I went to find him in the trees and took him some food. I left it next to him as he slept. It impacted me greatly that Tom was living like this just a few blocks from my home. After work that day, I went to look for him again, and he was holding a sign near an intersection trying to get a ride to California. I asked him if he wanted to get a shower and a good night's sleep before he caught a ride. After some convincing, he agreed and stayed at my apartment that night. We did laundry, ate a pizza, and watched John Wayne movies. Next day, I took him to the on-ramp he hoped to hitchhike from, but within an hour or two, it was raining When I went to check on him, he jumped in my truck and came back to my house again. Um, We don't have time for me to read the the entire story to you. uh, I I find it an amazing story of of Sean being the hands and feet of Jesus to Tom, a Vietnam vet whose ID had expired and then been lost. Uh, He had no way to prove who he was. Sean ends the story with this. Tom stayed with me until we got him his own place two years later. Two years of seeing the image of God in a man whose circumstances had all but erased his life. Two years of loving and caring for Tom. Two years of inviting Sean's friends to join in loving Tom, which included birthday parties and Christmas presents. Two years of helping Tom get a social security uh, card 
and veterans' benefits so that he could get on his feet and into his own apartment. Two years. And when I think about that story of Sean and Tom, I, I wonder if it would be too big of a stretch for all of us to hear Jesus' words to the religious lawyer. Now go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, I I imagine that this expert in the Jewish law maybe hung his head and walked away. Or maybe in his devotion to the law, he, he heard what Jesus said. And maybe, maybe it turned his life around. I don't know. But I pray that we would not just hang our heads and walk away. The words, love God and love people, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those words feel so good coming off our lips. Jesus, would you help us to do it? And in doing so, may we fulfill your law, the law of Christ, your great commandment that you require from us, you ask us to do. Lord, we, we want to follow you in this way. And we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.